My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again <laughs> with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? make every name illegal to incriminate the underprivileged and I who happen to be one of the so-called underprivileged happen to grow in the constituency of those laws where they call the healing of the nation ganja and all form of dangerous abusive names see ganja is an abusive name yes man ganja is a bird in Australia see and I don't smoke ganja Herb and music is the healing of the nation, see? Herb is the key to inspiration, the doors of inspiration. Without herb, any other thing cause distortion and the confusion, see? And I live in the realms of inspiration. Cannabis is a holy plant. When used responsibly and correctly, it will provoke insightful and intuitive thinking that will lead to inner wisdom and enlightenment. This is not my perspective or opinion. This is a known and accepted truth held by cultures around the world for thousands of years. And thanks to today's guest cannabis scholar, Chris Bennett, these long-held assertions stand on a basis of verified fact. Chris has written five books substantiating these notions about sensimia as a sacrament for various religions and belief systems, and even pointing at cannabis's possible role in developing modern human consciousness. Chris is a pioneer in cannabis and plant medicine activism, an urban shaman who promoted the many uses and benefits of hemp and cannabis, and a scholar pushing the plant from the realms of the black market to the halls of human agricultural history. And he joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss his new book, Cannabis, Lost Sacrament of the Ancient World. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Chris Bennett. You know, and monotheism consolidated all the wealth and all the politics and all the, the laws 
into one manageable source. And this is why monotheism likely spread throughout the world and other religions and stuff as well, right? Because of the, the feasibility of it managing a population, right? And one thing that, you know, it falls out this time is they, they do away with the prophets. You know what I mean? It says in, in the later books, if your son's a prophet, stab him. We don't want any new revelations. It's all about what's written. And these are the laws and rules that we find. And so this is all taking place at the time of Jeremiah. The, the, the book of Deuteronomy was discovered uh, in a temple built by Solomon himself, who was uh, accused of being polytheistic, burning incense on high to the Queen of Heaven in the Bible, and his Song of Songs with his cannabis reference. In Jeremiah 44, he's, you know, it's all fallen down, it's all gone to hell. He's out on the road, he's in Egypt, and he runs into Jews in Egypt, and he gets into this big conflict with them and he blames them for the the fall of jerusalem uh, because they were burning incense to the queen of heaven asherah obviously pouring out drink offerings to her and you know it's important to note that asherah isn't the only near eastern goddess where we know that cannabis was used ritually she has other counterparts regional variations of like they're all regional variations of likely a much earlier goddess but we know of uh, Assyrian references to Kanabu in the worship of... All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and returning after a long hiatus. He's uh, well overdue for a return interview. Someone who I am a, a big fan of. I've had several of his books for many years. His work has impacted the way I see the world in a very heavy way, and I'm excited to share that with you guys today. We're going to be talking about his latest book, but without further ado, before we get to that, Mr. Bennett, Chris, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you back. How are you today? I'm doing great, and, and always a pleasure to be on here, man. Yeah, it's truly a pleasure to have you back. Your book, Lieber 420, what we spent the majority of our last conversation talking about and that book really i mean it's a full compendium of the esoteric history of cannabis and i love it as a fellow cannabis lover there has always been a, a sacred feeling when i've smoked and unfortunately for whatever it's worth i i haven't always noticed that with the peers that i smoked with but when I found your books, it really spoke to this in, intuitive sense that I always got from cannabis. And I'm really, again, grateful to have you on the show because, yeah, you, you really, I think, filled in a lot of the blanks that I had, you know, created when I started really asking, well, why was this ever illegal? Why was were people ever trying to stigmatize this? And how long have humans really had a relationship with this plant? And your work really goes above and beyond at answering those questions. But we're going to be talking about your latest book, right, which is Cannabis, uh, Sacrament of the Lost of the Ancient World, um, Lost Sacrament of the Ancient World. Sorry, I got Lost World caught in my head there. But the link is in the description so folks can uh, check this book out. It's available already, right? It's already oh, yeah, it came out in uh, May. Excellent. Awesome. Just had to double check because you did send me a PDF copy. But when we last spoke, it was right around the time that this breaking news came out about the Temple of Arad. 
Let's get into that. What's really important or what should people know about what's been discovered at the Temple of Arad? Yeah, you know, uh, prior to this like archaeological discovery, which I will get into, I had been suggesting for decades that there was a role of, uh, for cannabis in the ancient Hebrew religion, you know, pre-Christian uh, period, you know. Uh, um, and uh, this was based on a linguistic theory by an etymologist and anthropologist, Sula Bennett, regarding the word cannabosum, right? And, you know, it, it seemed like it was had a destiny to remain just a theory, you know, because it's like a linguistic thing. Other people were suggesting other uh, identities for this term cannabosum. The uh, modern Bible is generally translated as calamus or fragrant cane, you know. But uh, I felt the evidence then was very strong for it being cannabis, but was hard to prove, you know, uh, based on just purely textual linguistic evidence. Now, in 2020, uh, there was a study of a temple site, uh, Tel Arab, which the temple site had been known for a while, right? Uh, it was a fortress temple that was used uh, as a trading post and also to mark the boundaries of, uh, of the Israelite kingdom. And uh, on this temple site, uh, there was a miniature temple that was built on the same design as the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem itself is described. And they know that this was a temple site because they found inscriptions there that said the house of Yahweh, right? However, in this particular temple site, there was a room which was like the meeting place for meeting with the God. It's about the size of a broom closet. And inside this room, there were two altars. And one altar had residues of frankincense, and the other altar had residues of cannabis resins. And they're specifically saying that this was like hashish or some resinous product, not raw flowers of cannabis, right? And this was burned in this small room, which I say was about the size of a, a broom closet, probably four or five feet by about eight feet, you know, with a shallow ceiling at the time, and would have really been good at holding smoke. And there were also two standing stones. Now, these two altars and two standing stones are very interesting uh, because Yahweh, which is the biblical God we know as Jehovah in the West nowadays, in the ancient war, ancient Israel, uh, you know, we're talking about this time period, 8th century BC and prior, was actually coupled with a goddess. He had a wife. God had a wife. And a lot of people probably are not familiar with this, but this is well accepted by biblical scholars nowadays that Yahweh was coupled with this goddess Asherah. And Asherah was the queen of the gods, queen of heaven, you know. And there was a whole pantheon of gods. It wasn't monotheism, which means the worship of one god that we know today. Monotheism, as depicted in the Bible, that's a much later development. A few centuries after this, probably around the 5th century BC, it really starts to take root in Israel. But prior to this, you know, we know from archaeological evidence, it was polytheistic. And there's numbers of inscriptions that refer to Yahweh and Asherah, his wife. And also, at this temple site in Tel Arad, they found Asherah figurines. So this is designated as a place that identified the combined worship of Yahweh and his partner, Asherah. And the reason that this temple site is so well preserved is because it was purposely canceled around the 8th century BCE. And this was at the times of either King Hezekiah or his grandson Josiah, who both appear in the Bible, the Book of Kings, right? And much of this is the situation is described in the Books of Kings and Chronicles. It describes 
the Asherah poles being with inside the temple and them having to take them out and other implements in there that they had to remove because they were idolatrous. This was not a return to an earlier monotheism as depicted in the Bible. And we know this because of the archaeological evidence, lots of it in the Holy Land. The region was polytheistic, and this monotheism was a new development. And when monotheism came in, it came in with a horrendous revolution that saw the destruction of many other temple sites, those of Baal and those of Asherah particularly. And Asherah was removed from the biblical. God got a divorce from it from his wife. And so this site was, because of its evidence of combined worship, was knocked over and buried in sand immediately. A new floor was built over it, and then they just went back to doing whatever they they were going to do, right? So that's why this material has been so well-preserved, and uh, they've been able to do such uh, accurate uh, scientific examinations of what what was burnt on these altars, right? Right. Uh, Now, this fits with these earlier references to... now, Now, there was a lot of debate when this came out in the news and stuff like that, right? Uh, Many people uh, um, said, well, look at this is proves this cannabisum stuff because cannabis was used in the holy anointing oil and blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, which was one, one view out there. Uh, And then there was another view that said, no, this was adulterous practices. And this is all part of what was prohibited when they were doing these reforms, which weren't really reforms because they were something new. Uh, And in a way, both of these people are right. Now, it's really interesting. There's these, as I mentioned, these references to this Hebrew term, Cannabis. When these references occur in Exodus, Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, right? Now, in the first of these references, Exodus 30, 23, God commands Moses to make a holy anointing oil with about uh, six pounds of this cannabis mixed with myrrh, cassia, cinnamon, into about a gallon and a half of olive oil. And whenever Moses is uh, to talk to God in what was then the tent of the meeting, they're moving around in the desert in the story. Um, the tent of the meeting was a small little tent-like structure. Moses would go into the tent of the meeting, he would burn incense, and he would pour some of this oil onto the altar of incense, and he would speak to the Lord in the pillar of smoke over the altar of incense, right? And this represented the physical presence of God in the temple. And we see in nearby Assyria, similar uses of cannabis under the, the Assyrian name, Kanabu. In Assyria, we have inscriptions that indicate its use in the sacred rites, indicate its use preparation into salves and other substances, as well as preparation into incense, right? And then in the next of these references... This occurs in the Song of Songs, and this was supposedly, you know, according to biblical tradition, Solomon wrote this, right? The Song of Songs is like a wedding feast, but it's all mixed in with this fertility symbolism of of the land, like somehow the erotic nature of uh, man and woman's love it fulfills the the bounty of nature and causes it to fruit, right? And a number of scholars have suggested that uh, the Song of Songs is the Hebrew version of what's known as the hero's gamels, or the sacred marriage. And this was where the uh, god of the region was coupled with the goddess of the region to bring fertility to the land. And when you read the Song of Songs, it's very much like that. Not just this canna, which is the, the term here that a number of people are saying is cannabis, 
appears, but also uh, other intoxicating substances such as mandrake, particularly, which is also appears in the book of Genesis, you know, and is another agent of toxins and uh, aphrodisiac. And it has been suggested that this was the Hebrew version of that. We know that the Hebrew God, Yahweh, was at one time coupled with a wife, Asherah. Uh, in the next of these references in Isaiah, um, God complains to him. He says, you have not brought any uh, frankincense to me here. I'll read you the exact quotes here. Just give me a second. Yeah, so it, it, it's a complaint against God. God complains that he was not brought any frankincense or cannabis in this reference here, right? And in the Isaiah reference, which is in 43, 23, 24, I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me any fragrant cane, this is the canna reference, with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and you wearied me with your iniquities. So in this reference here, we're seeing both frankincense and cannabis, as was found in these two Telerad altars, right? Mm. And God's God's saying, you didn't bring me this stuff, so I'm don't come to me with your problems, you know? Now, I'm saying that this is evidence of this same sort of incense use that is indicated by um, the finding at Telerad. And uh, it, it, it's indicated that this at some times was fulfilled. And another reference in Isaiah 6, 4 to 7, we read, and the, poor, the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. So in the reference where we have cannabis, God says, but you know, you didn't bring me any cannabis or frankincense, but you burned me with your sins and read me with your iniquities. But here, where the uh, seraphim takes with tongs from off the altar of incense, a coal and hold it up to Isaiah's lips, right? So he'd take a big hit. His iniquity is taken away and his sins purged, right? And, and I should point out that frankincense also occurs in the Song of Song reference. You know, the Song of Song references, which is Song of Songs 4 8 to 14, is where it appears. We read, Your plants were an orchid of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna, nard, nard, and saffron, canna, and cinnamon, and every kind of frankincense tree. So here they are again, right? In the Ezekiel reference, it says, Danites and Greeks from Uzal brought your merchandise. They changed wrought iron, cassia, and canna for your wares. And so here in Ezekiel, it appears as an item of trade. And that's interesting because this is also fits with Telerab. The researchers there say this was a trading post, and this was a very expensive commodity that came in on those trade routes, you know. And the term canna itself is likely a term that came into the Hebrew language via these trade routes with cannabis, uh, um, because this is the Indo-European name for cannabis, canna, and is at the root of all sorts of Indo-European language uh, uh, names for cannabis. It's the root word for cannabis, our modern term cannabis, right? And so then in the final reference to cannabis in the Old Testament, it occurs in Jeremiah 6.20. 
And in Jeremiah 6.20, and this is written at the time of these reforms that I was talking about, where God was separated from Asherah and this form of worship uh, was prohibited. In Jeremiah 6.20, we see, what do I care about frankincense from Shiva or sweet-smelling kana from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me, right? And so here, what was formerly, you know, part of the, the, the main ritual in the tent of the meeting, you know, uh, in the inner temple of the Holy of Holies is now rejected. And this is interesting because in Jeremiah 44, we run into this scene where Jeremiah, this is after Israel and Judah fell to the Assyrians and Babylonians, right? Like a large part of what led to monotheism was political necessity in a way, right? You know, the Hebrew kingdom, when it was polytheistic, it was surrounded uh, by much larger kingdoms and often fell uh, into war with them. You know, it was a vassal of Egypt. Assyria went in there and blasted the shit out of them. Then the Babylonians, and this is when the dysphoria happened and they all got sent off, right? And Jeremiah is right at this time place. And so is this cancellation of this temple in Tel Arad, right? And, you know, when poly, in polytheism, you know, there's no division. There, there was no division between politics and religion. And trying to control a kingdom with all these bickering cults was pretty difficult, you know. And monotheism consolidated all the wealth and all the politics and all the, the laws into one manageable source. And this is why monotheism likely spread throughout the world and other religions and stuff as well, right? Because of a, the, the feasibility of it, managing a population, right? And one thing that, you know, it falls out this time is they, they do away with the prophets. You know what I mean? It says in, in the later books, if your son's a prophet, stab him. You know what I mean? You know, it's like, we don't want any new revelations. It's all about what's written. And these are the laws and rules that we follow. And so this is all taking place uh, at the time of Jeremiah. The, the, the book of Deuteronomy was discovered uh, in a temple built by Solomon himself, who was uh, accused of being polytheistic, burning incense on high to the Queen of Heaven in the Bible, and his Song of Songs with his uh, cannabis reference. So they, were, they said that in the at the time of Josiah, Hezekiah's grandson, they were doing renovations of the temple and they discovered the book of Deuteronomy. And then they said, see, it says all these other temples aren't supposed to be here, the Asherahs, the things, and they just started ripping everything apart and killing all the priestesses and priests that all lived there, had long always been part of the culture, right? Right. Uh, it's a massive change, you know, revolution uh, against the, the former ways that things were. And part of it arose out of political necessity uh, because they were, you know, uh, having to deal with these larger onslaughts. Right. So this is where Jeremiah is. Right. And uh, in Jeremiah 44, he's, you know, it's all fallen down. It's all gone to hell. He's out on the road. He's in Egypt and he runs into Jews in Egypt. And he gets into this big conflict with them, and he blames them for the, the fall of Jerusalem uh, because they were burning incense to the queen of heaven, Asherah, obviously, pouring out drink offerings to her. And, you know, it's important to note that Asherah isn't the only Near Eastern goddess where we know that 
cannabis was used ritually. She has other counterparts, regional variations of like, they're all regional variations of likely a much earlier goddess. But we know of uh, Assyrian references to Kanabu in the worship of uh, Asherah, a Hittite, uh, Ishera, a Hittite goddess going way back. And, you know, there, there's direct references to how it was used by the cult of Ishera uh, as a salve and a perfume. We have direct references to beer-like beverage being prepared from cannabis in the cult of Ishtar. And we have direct references that record large amounts of Kanabu cannabis being brought to the Temple of Banana, major Near Eastern goddess. It seems to be something pretty common in the worship of these goddesses, you know. And so when this goddess worship was repressed and the, you know, the prophets and the seers and all those type of people to make way for this new monotheism, the the, the religion of the book, you know, and uh, this is where the cannabis falls by the wayside in religion. And this shows uh, you know, in, in, in Jeremiah's reference, he specifically says, what do I care about frankincense from Sheba? Frankincense found at Telarad, Sheba. This is all connected to Solomon again. Uh, or a sweet-smelling kind of the cannabis found at Telarad, you know. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices are not pleased be, followed by a condemnation of the people burning incense to the queen of heaven and blaming this for the, the fall of the nation. So this is a pretty clear connection, you know. And, you know, the, the suppression of cannabis is one thing, but, this, you know, when you consider the role the patriarchal ideals of monotheism have done in shaping our modern, war-torn, polluted, destructed world, you know, Asherah was basically, you know, Mother Earth, man. That's how people worshipped her, you know what I mean? And making women second-class citizens ever since, you know, the possession of their husbands and stuff like that. That's not the way it was. Maybe that's not the way it's supposed to be. But that is the world we live in, you know. And this is all kind of relates to the Garden of Eden, but maybe I should, you know, like let you get back if you have any questions about that. Maybe we can discuss the whole Garden of Eden mythology. You yeah, I'd love to get into that as you are describing this really incredible saga of you know monotheism replacing polytheism. It, you know, the analogy keeps hitting me. It sounds a lot like what Walmart did to all these small, you know, mom and pop shops that used to sell all of these things that people would need throughout the week and the month. And now everybody goes to a big corporation for these types of things. You know, the same, you know, th- same thing with any, you know, Uber to taxis or, you know, the delivery services with restaurants. I mean, you could make this analogy and, and show how, I guess, maybe industry or efficiency if you can call it that but it's really interesting to think that polytheism was more of a grassroots organic iteration of uh, the anthropos the humans relationship with nature it seems like you know one thing that we can learn from cannabis is how judaism was informed by these other cultures in a much larger way than maybe we give credit now, right? I mean, the influence of Hinduism and the other Near Eastern religions that were going on in, at that time and also using cannabis, I mean, I'm sure there's uh, tons of parallels that can be made when someone goes about the you know study of comparative religion using cannabis as a lens. But when it comes to the, you know, the world of, you know, Christian, Judaic, even Islamic religions, 
I feel like the modern conception, at least when people approach the subject of something like cannabis, they don't necessarily put it in a spiritual category. It's become something that is like almost akin to like counterculture, but not even, you know, now with the proliferation of uh, the black market and drugs and you know, it became for a while uh, this sort of, you know, rebellious thing. And now... Well, with personal freedom, I think, you know, like in a lot of ways, just the pot leaf, you know. Right. Uh, is, it has been a symbol of person. You know, I live in Canada. It's legal across the whole country here, right? So, so much of that stigma is gone now. Well, and um, I do but- want to get into that because I think it all connects and, you know, by looking at how cannabis was censored back in, you know, this time and how that connects to the feminine, as you put the woman becoming a possession and the feminine aspect of culture being suppressed. I mean, look at the way our culture exists now. I mean, you make a really poignant point with this. It, it, it connects a lot of dots for me. But when we go back to the Garden of Eden story, right, one of the maybe misconceptions about the Garden of Eden is that Eve was created from Adam's rib, right? This is something that I'm not a biblical scholar. I don't know how true this is. Maybe it was a game of telephone where that kind of changed over the years and the actual story was more nuanced than Eve being a sort of byproduct of man. But how does cannabis play into the story of the Garden of Eden? Well, you know, this was something I really looked at in, in this new book, and it has a lot to do, like, people think that the Garden of Eden, you know, the Eden myth, and it's at the beginning of the Bible, it's how the Bible starts, must be where they started writing it. No, it's none of that. The Bible's not, like, written by beginning to end, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a jumble of books that are all slammed together and, you know, re-edited and made to fit, and, you know, that's why there's contradictions of them. I didn't want to address something where, you know, until you were talking about Yahweh and polytheism. I think one of the, the reasons of Yahweh's success was the way he absorbed other gods, you know what I mean? In many places in the Bible, anywhere it says God in the Old Testament, it's actually this other Hebrew word, Elohim. And anywhere it says Lord, that's a translation of Yahweh, the, the term I've been using. I would say he became the more dominant one. But El, Elohim, is likely a development of the Canaan, uh, king of the gods, El. And Yahweh was at one time one of thought to be by biblical scholars and historians thought to have been one of Yahweh's sons, but somehow raised to the top of the pantheon and adapted all El's attributes, all Baal's attributes, and eventually all of, a lot of Asherah's attributes. You know, and I think the Garden of Eden story kind of wraps that up. You know what I mean? It's like God becomes the creator, male becomes creator. You know, and women's created from man's rib, you know, man's not born of women. Well, you know, even in the Christian myth, man, God still needed a woman to create a man. <laughs> so right. there's that, you know. But I, I my, myself and others have seen this uh, as an actual mythological piece of propaganda written to demonize the the former worship of Asherah and her use of sacred plants in, in, in her worship. And Eve actually means life, and it was Hawa, the Hebrew term, is thought to have been one of Asherah's own epithets. And in the reforms committed by Hezekiah, one of the first he, things he does when he goes into the Holy of Holies to do his reforms is he pulls out the Asherah pole, which was a symbol of Asherah, uh, but he also takes out the brazen serpent that Moses made because the people of Israel have been burning incense to it back to that day. 
And so, you know, they're saying that Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy, but here they had to pull the brazen serpent that he made that was right in the temple. And the temple, it's well established that the symbolism of the temple is directly related to the Garden of Eden. It's the only places we have the two cherubim, but the Garden of Eden and within the temple on the Ark of the Covenant, there's all this vegetative in the thing. And, you know, both biblical enthusiasts, you know, and biblical historians agree that, you know, the temple was based on this Eden or Eden was based on the temple, one of the two, you know what I mean? But uh, so in, in the Eden story, we see the, de- you know, the serpent demonized and the sacred trees demonized. You know, the, the first thing they do is a weave cloth after they've eaten the forbidden fruit that opens their eyes. We know that th- that cannabis was woven by the cult of Ashur because we have archaeological evidence of cannabis on a loom at a sacred site. And it refers to the weavings of the cult of Ashur within the temple in the Bible, in the book of Kings and Chronicles and uh, whatnot. So this is a, another pretty clear collection, more archaeological evidence as well, right? And women is demonized, you know, so she's taken from her former place of glory. She's made the possession of her husband, blamed for all the sins, you know, and uh, whatnot, and burdened with childbirth, you know, and that was another aspect of the cult of Asherah was its role in childbirth, and likely cannabis medicines were used there. We know from an archaeological, a later archaeological find in Israel at Bet Shemesh, that cannabis was used in the birthing process for the discovery of the mummified remains of a young girl who died in childbirth, and they had been burning cannabis and rubbing cannabis resins on her belly, ointments on her belly. So, you know, it's confirmed that cannabis was used in the region. That's from a later period, though, from the third or fourth century common era. Well, and This was something that I wanted to touch on at some point, you know, the medicinal aspects of cannabis are something that obviously have been around as long as the plant itself that, you know, it's served that purpose as long as it's existed. So surely ancient peoples would have recognized more than just its psychedelic properties. They would have recognized the the Egyptian, Egyptian recipes for medical cannabis. Assyrian recipes for things like epilepsy, menstrual problems, right? Uh, you know, that sort of things. Uh, you know, it was well well established. You know, like it's thought that the oldest pharmacopoeia uh, by Reverend Shen Nung of uh, the Pen Sao, you know, it's thought to go back 2700 BC, and it, it refers to cannabis. Appears in ancient Ayurvedic texts anywhere. You know, could well be the first medicine. You know, well, you know, its medicinal qualities is one of the first things people have noticed about it. Yeah, you know, on this show, we like to go and, and look at the work of Graham Hancock and others who are constantly pushing the, the timeline back with discoveries and, you know, this idea that, you know, human civilization might have been more advanced at one point and then reached uh, a, a decline due to some cataclysm. Maybe there was a time where cannabis was, you know, recognized in a more advanced capacity across the world. I mean, look at how it's helped people travel across the world with just, you know, the rope fibers. I mean, it's essential for ocean navigation. Well, based on archaeological evidence, current archaeological evidence, there's thought to be evidence of tools used in the processing of hemp, according to uh, um, one of the foremost textile experts in the world, uh, Elizabeth Barber. Uh, um, going back to 28,000 years ago, uh, there's been claims of hemp rope. Uh, going back 24,000 years ago in Czechoslovakia, there's been uh, claims of hemp cloth 
from both Cattle Hayak and uh, Taiwan. So a big spread there and the, how far away they're apart and very different cultures uh, going back, you know, 10 to 12,000 years, right? And then we start getting into ritual use, you know, evidence from Ukraine and Romania indicate it was used in funerary rites like 5,500 years ago, burnt as an incense, much like the Scythians did in later funerary rites, which grew out of these earlier cultures. Uh, in Spain, recently, they found the remains of either a priestess or queen, a uh, high-ranking indi- female individual, and uh, with her were found a plate uh, with the residues of both cannabis and wine on it, indicating a combination of the two, which is something that occurs in a lot of literature as well. You know, thought to be the the first anesthesia was a, a cannabis-infused wine used in uh, China in around 100 AD for operations, you know, uh, cutting into the body and, and whatnot. And uh, yeah, you know, we're talking, you know, like, you know, uh, Carl Sagan speculated that agriculture probably began with cannabis. This is something that Terrence McKenna also uh, agreed with, that, you know, the agriculture itself. So in a way, you know, culture grew out of agriculture. And as we've cultivated cannabis, maybe cannabis in ways cultivated us, you know. Well, and um, I think- here it is again, you know, we separated from it. And here we are in dire need right. of change, man. You know, it's like there's two futures, you know. We can go the way of the oil rock companies and the Koch brothers, or we could take the hemp and highway, man, you know? Right. And I do want to That's the opportunity right now. Go greener. I don't just mean just hemp, but but the whole greening of the planet. Hemp's a big, you know, a big tool for that. There's more to it involved. I'm not like negating these other green factors, but, you know, it it is a big symbol in dichotomy. Absolutely. I do want to speak about, you know, the contemporary and future state of cannabis towards the end of our conversation. But, you know, you make the point in your book, and I think you just illustrated it brilliantly in your sentence there, your statement rather, that, you know, cannabis and agriculture may have helped develop what we now think of as human culture. And, you know, cannabis, I wonder how much of what we think of as, you know, the Christian, the the Judeo-Christian religions, how much of that came from the trading of cannabis? Because as you you put in the book, you see, you know, in all of these ancient religions that helped inform cannabis, the predecessors of the Judeo-Christian religions, they have cannabis just uh, intrinsically as a part of their spiritual world. Well, you know, I think that, you know, you can identify cannabis in a lot of the world's religions, you know, ancient ones that have continued down here, Zoroastrianism, there's all these references to to, to bang-infused wine. Uh, would bang be a can- agent, a vested name for cannabis, right? You know what I mean? And Hinduism is still used, you know, it's holy to Shiva, the oldest continually worshipped God on earth. In Taoism, it was like a major part of the birth of Taoism. There's Taoist poems from like 2,500 years ago, things like first a yin, then a yang. No one knows what I do. Jade buds of holy hemp for the one that lives apart, you know. Scythians and other groups, but, you know, Islam, you know what I mean? It's like Sufis and stuff like that. There's been claims that indicate that Muhammad himself uh, had partaken of cannabis while on the road. You know, there's the Dabat, I forget the name of it. It's a 17th century text from the Dabistan, I think it's called. 
And it refers to Muhammad pouring, straining bong, the drink, through his turban. And that's why his turban's straining, you know. Right. Uh, there's parallels to be made to his flight to Mecca with the Zoroastrian literature where people are drinking cannabis and having, having out-of-body uh, experiences into the netherworld, you know, that really parallel that. And these are things that I've written, you know, it sounds like as if, you know, like it just sounds so weightless to say it just like that. But you got to really look at the material that I'm talking about when I say this, you know, and this is something that I have written about extensively and I quote the actual texts and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, um, and so, you know, in Buddhism as well, there's stories of how the Buddha subsisted on one hemp seed a day for announcing his own, you know, eight noble truths that go back, you know, 24, 2,500 years ago. Right. And later Tibetan Buddhism as well, there's, you know, definite references to the use, ritual use of cannabis and shamanic ceremonies, as well as, you know, Datshura and other substances as well. And so, uh, yeah, man, you know, like I, I think that when you really begin to understand this information, it becomes as much of a threat to fundamental religion as Darwin's theory of evolution was to the myths of Adam and Eve, because what it demonstrates is the plant-based shamanic origins of the world's religions, man. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. And as you point out, they censored it. Hezekiah possibly censored this in the past, but even with the 2020 discoveries, they failed to mention the figurines in a lot of the articles that reported it, right? Yeah. yeah, You know, you can look up Telerad and Asherah and you'll find lots written on it, but you can look up Telerad and Cannabis you won't find much written that this whole connection with Asher is there as well. Right. But these are like what's well established uh, uh, material, right. and you know, I, I you know, it's it, it is going to come to light. You know what I mean? Right. It, it, it's inevitable. I think the problem was that you know, right when it was discovered, you know, Trump was tweeting every day. We were in the midst of COVID panic, uh, um, and so it just kind of there was news stories about it, but it didn't receive the sort of attention that it would really needs to see. You know. It's unfortunate, a lot of like fanciful stuff that really isn't based in actual solid history gets a lot of attention that this sort of real solid historical information has kind of fallen by the wayside. And, you know, people probably, more people are enthusiastic about, you know, the claims of mushrooms in Christianity, which I think are complete bunk. Not that other substances weren't, weren't used. Mandrake was definitely, you know, peers in well, and Christian. I do want to ask about that because it does seem like in the Northern European cultures, you know, that scholars have pointed out the use of mushrooms like Amanita muscaria. And I'm curious if they're maybe downplaying the the use of cannabis for whatever reason, or maybe... I don't know. I don't think there's any conspiracy. I think that, you know, like a lot of this stuff, you know, you know, most of the people I see writing about, and I discuss this in, in, in my new book, and I've written articles about this, are basing like this claim of mushroom use in Christianity for the most part. There was Allegro, whose book was that Jesus was a mushroom and destroyed his career. Uh, there's so many problems. You know, Allegro was actually a brilliant scholar, but you know, it kind of just killed his career. But it's like, 
there's so many problems with it, you know. Uh, Allegro even claimed that the, the term cannabis itself identified a mushroom. <laughs> you know, I go over some of his, his etymology and linguistics in my new book. But I think, you know, other authors like James Arthur or John Irvin or Jerry Brown, you know, they're writing these books. And it's largely based on claims of, you know, paintings of trees that look like mushrooms in Christian art in the medieval period indicate this secret tradition of mushroom use, you know? Right. And, you know, you're not finding any, you know, Christian scholars that are saying this stuff. There's no corroborative evidence. Text, you know, people writing about, we think these guys are secretly using mushrooms or anything like that. They're, you know, it's all purely based on this interpretation of artistic. I don't really like that type of, I don't really consider that real scholarship, you know? Right. Uh, some can look, you know, I, I go over some of the artistic arguments uh, in detail in, in my book and why I disagree with them, as well as what other people have said about them that disagree with them. Even R. Gordon Wasson, who was a, uh, a complete mushroom enthusiast, he disagreed with Allegro's take on this and Allegro's use of the of a mushroom-like tree, you know, depicted Eden-like tree, depicted that could be seen as a mushroom because of its shape. He disputed that as well, right? So there's not even any cons- consensus there. I guess what I really like about, you know, like things like cannabis, mandrake, opium, hembane, datura, uh, is there's actual... References. We know the names that these things were used by. You know what I mean? Like cannabis is one of the comes from Canada. The roots like goes is Proto-Indo-European, man. It's like the oldest form of a word, right. you know, and many of these other, you know, words can be traced back through time as well, right? And then we also have archaeological evidence for many of these substances, right? You know, and we don't have any of that for, for, for these other things. So, it's a big difference. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to speculate about the ancient Hebrew use of cannabis. We've got solid archaeological evidence indicating it, right. you know, proving it basically on an altar in the exact context that I was saying it was being used uh, based on purely linguistic evidence for decades. Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so, you know, it's, it's a shame that this stuff isn't known, you know, it's important information, man. It, you know, people have got to talk about it. It's challenging information. You know, you throw cannabis in with Moses into the tent of the meeting and he's talking to God in a pillar of smoke. Is he high? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> cannabis has receptors in the areas of higher thinking and memory. It kind of facilitates that type of stuff. You see, you know, like in Libra 420, there's a a load of magical use of cannabis. And a lot of it is for exactly that type of reason. You know, there's people actually, you know, in the Picatrix, probably one of the oldest grimoires going back to the 10th century in its Islamic form is the Gayat al-Akim, the Latin version of the Picatrix. You have burned cannabis hashish in this ritual and you talk to the spirit of the moon in the in the pillar of smoke, you know what I mean? Right, right. Just like Moses, uh, you know, and uh, was used with magic mirrors, you know what I mean? And it's like, in both cases, you're looking into the smoke and it's changing shape or your dark room, candlelit room or looking into a mirror and you're focusing, focusing and stuff. And you begin to see something, you know what I mean? And this is all explainable by uh, projections of the subconscious mind and, and, and that sort of thing. You know, like I'm not saying this as like I'm not an atheist, you know what I mean? Like. I, I kind of think, you know, it's like we're the universe in this voyage of self-discovery, you know. It's like, I don't believe it's all just nuts and bolts, you know. 
But at the same time, it's a lot of nuts and bolts. <laughs> right. Well, and that's why we appreciate having you on the show so much to to dive through this stuff because yeah, there's a lot to to wrap your head around. And you know, given that cannabis and really shamanism's role in religion has been suppressed. It's sort of why I asked about, you know, the Northern European cultures. One of the lines of inquiry I've been going down on this show, and this may not be your forte, but I would like to know you know, your thoughts, if any, on this topic. You know, people have made this this hypothesis that the Druidic cultures and maybe even some of the pagan cultures in Scandinavia were influenced heavily by the seafaring cultures from the BC era, Phoenicians and maybe even Egyptians, right? And some maybe, you know, more speculative claims that this fallen Atlantean group may have all been, a, you know, kind of connected to these groups, like a, a predecessor to them. Now, given that there is evidence for shamanism in these Druidic cultures, I wonder if that was a part of the, you know, suppressed Christianity, you know, the Roman Empire was polytheistic at the time. Was there any cannabis use in Rome and would that maybe have played into their, you know? I, I think there was likely some probably people burning cannabis incenses and resins, you know, as well as well as indicates the use of cannabis beers and stuff, you know, second, third century A.D., uh, in, in that area would have filtered over, that would have been Egypt, but it would have filtered over into Rome, all these places for connections. There's so many cults like Mithra and Isis and all these types of things where I think, you know, it likely would be. Uh, David Hillman made a case for uh, a lot of uh, you know, drug use in Roman ancient Greece in, I forget the name of his book, but Dr. David Hillman, you know. And, well, and even with the Celts, you have some clear indications that there may be some, you know, relation to the Vedic culture there, even down to like the blue. Well, this is all Indo-European, you know right. what I mean? It's all Indo-European. It's like, you know, the Chinese mummies, or European mummies they found in China from like 27, 2800 years ago with cannabis resins, they had like tartan, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's been finds of cannabis at Celtic funerary sites and stuff. Now, and it's all over Europe and ritual use of cannabis in the ancient world is well accepted. You know what I mean? You could take a look at the Encyclopedia of Indo-European Studies and it, you know, it indicates there was large waves of cannabis use and the Celts and Scythians and all these groups were, you know, interrelated, man. The Sith right. spread right around, man. There's a big connection between Scythian art and Celtic art. Anybody speaking an Indo-European language too, right? You know, okay. is all part of a tree that goes back to this, you know, early earliest Indo-European cultures, even proto-Indo-European cultures were originally using cannabis, right? You know what I mean? This is even the word itself spreads from that, right? So yeah. There, there's numbers of, you know, Celtic funerary sites, indications of druidic use. Uh, Freya, uh, the goddess Freya, you know, had cannabis rituals involved with her. It's all over the place, man. You know, it's, it, it, yeah, it's just so much to lay out. All right, and it's about that time of the show where we go to an ad break. This is the only way that I can keep this podcast going unless, of course, we get more people to support the show. So if you prefer an ad-free experience, help us reach our goal of 250 patrons by the end of the year. We're only 40 people away, and we've got tens of thousands of people listening to this show, so I'm sure there's 40 of you out there who can sign up right now and listen to the rest of this conversation ad-free. Uh, for the rest of you, have fun listening to these dynamic ads 
that were placed by the cookies that uh, are determined on your phone. So these ads have nothing to do with me. Uh, they are provided by the host, and I have no control over what you're about to hear. So consider signing up on the Patreon or the Substack today so you can avoid all that nonsense and get back to the conversation. Well, with that in mind, and I'm glad that you're with me and I appreciate you spelling that out for me because, yeah, I, that's exactly what I was getting to. Now, how much evidence of cannabis use is there in the new world? Because, and bear with me for a second, because when I was younger, 18 years old, learning all this stuff, two years after my first spiritual cannabis experience, I made a friend who's Native American from Arizona, and he taught me a bunch of stuff. One of the things that he told me when I asked him about cannabis and Native Americans' use of cannabis is he said as far as he knew from what he's learned from his tribe, and that's down in the southwest of the United States, cannabis has been around for a while before the Spanish came. And, you know, this is a controversial idea because as far as academia goes, they'll say, you know, the Vikings made it to what, as far as Northern Canada and the East, Eastern seaboard, but they don't really get too far into the Vikings maybe going as far as the Great Lakes and other cultures being here in New England is one of the things that I've been researching given the, the stone structures that are all over New England. There's a clear connection to the stone structures of the old world. And it makes me wonder how much of Native American culture was in a greater connection to European culture before Columbus, right? These, this idea that like the Micmac tribe and the Scandinavians invented hockey. And if these people were traveling across the ocean, to, you know, they must have had hemp with them, right? So I, I wonder if cannabis came over to the, the New World much earlier than, you know, the accepted colonization period after the, you know, 14, 1492 ocean, Columbus sailing the ocean blue. Well, you know, this is something I've, you know, thought about a lot over the years. And I wrote in my first book positively on it. My first book being Green Gold, The Tree of Life, uh, Marijuana and Magic and Religion, which came out in 1995. At that time, I was influenced by Jack Frazier's uh, The Early American Hemp Industry, which actually came out before Jack Herrer's uh, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And he was very into these ideas and cited a number of examples of hemp cloth and some other pipes and things like that. I'd also found, I was involved with this group, the Church of the Universe back then, and uh, they sent me a newspaper article about an archaeological dig where, uh, in Morriston, Ontario, where there was the claim of 500-year-old native pipes uh, that contained residues of cannabis and tobacco. Now, since then, you know, this was, you know, before where there's like internet and so easy to back check and find people and contact them. The Morriston, Ontario dig is proved to be false. Some reporter got something wrong or something like that. The original archaeologist says, no, there was no cannabis residues in the pipes. Uh, the cloth samples cited by Fraser were not tested. It was based on purely visual reports. Oh, this looks like hemp cloth. And people use terms like hemp and stuff pretty loosely. And for any fiber, you know, type thing, manila hemp, things like that. And, uh, you know, to be verified, it would have to be genetically tested. 
But they also do things like, you know, pollen samples is what we know lots about, you know, when cannabis was growing and where and things like that through different stratospheres of the soil and the pollen samples or the pollen samples and archaeological items like wine M4 or things like that where they're preserved. Uh, um, and there's, you know, no really good archaeological evidence of, of cannabis. You know, the pre-Columbus, there's, there's the, you know, over here in Newfoundland, not far from where I'm at here, there is the Viking settlement and they found, I think, uh, some hemp seeds or something like that on that particular site. And now there have been claims about uh, South American mummies with uh, cannabinoids and Egyptian mummies with residues of tobacco and cocaine, both New World plants. But, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be stoked. You know what I mean? It's unfortunate because those same uh, 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 tests on the Egyptian mummies also found hashish. But I don't even like referencing the hashish because there's such a quagmire of controversy and rejection of these finds and the basis of them, people saying it's probably embalming things that broke down. And like a lot of the stuff is found not through like, you know, the identification of THC. It's more like other sub things that are in it, you know, right. you know, I mean, I'm not a scientist, so I can't explain it, but I've read the material and I can kind of understand it when I'm reading it, you know what I mean? And I've, I've gone over the Egyptian mummies at length in a couple of books Oh, and, you know, looked at the different papers on both sides of it. You know what I mean? I'm a cannabis enthusiast, man. It's like, I'd love for this stuff to be true. You know what I mean? And, well, and, and things. I'm not out to, you know, disprove, but I want to be accurate, man. Right. You know what I mean? And it's right. like that stuff, you know, and I, 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 when I write, I really try to distinguish between, you know, what's a fact and what's a theory. You know what I mean? I do some theorizing, sure, man, based on all the stuff I know and try to put some pieces together. But I try to be really clear yeah. that that's what I'm doing. You know what I mean when I'm doing that? Absolutely. No, and I respect that. And I, I think that gives you, that lends the the topic some much needed credibility, you know, especially yeah, yeah. as controversial you as know, it already can be. To be honest with you, I think most of the psychedelic, you know, history books and stuff like that, most of it's fluffy bunk, man. You know what I mean? It's quackery. And there's what the what they need is a really good dose of critical thinking. Mm. And I think myself, I probably learn more from my critics than enthusiastic supporters, you know? Not that I haven't learned from both, but you know what I mean? People that right. challenge your ideas and you're like, oh, that kind of, yeah, you got a point there. You know what well, I mean? And now I've got to really take a look at what you said and figure either how I'm going to patch that hole. Or right. Well, let project. me attempt to... Oh. Let me attempt to broach this back to the Near East because, and again, we're in a realm of speculation, so I understand if this is stuff that you don't necessarily support, but there's an author named Barry Fell, former Harvard professor. You might be familiar with his work, and one of the things that he compiled was evidence for Mesopotamian cultures in the old, in the new world, right? So maybe BC era traveling across the Atlantic Ocean, there are things like pottery shards and other artifacts that may or may not be from cultures like the Assyrians, the Phoenicians, the Libyans and I just not a, a, it's not my Yeah. Well, and I guess I guess that's you know maybe we'll leave it at that then because you know like if if like if solid accepted you know you know I don't 
you know, I even you know, have to be honest with you, I kind of, you know, had a bit of a falling out with Graham Hancock when he's, you know, talking about conspiracies by archaeologists or oppresses his research instead of no. They just think your research is bunk <laughs> right. based on what they know. You know what I mean? You're making too loose of claims to fit into that kind of realm of seriousness, a, a serious study. And, you know, like I build my case on archaeological evidence and, and, and that sort of thing. You know what I mean? That's my main source and, you know, finding these guys with this type of stuff. Right. Uh, um, and archaeologists are friends, man. I don't think that they're like, you know, guardians of the secrets. They're trying to suppress our knowledge or anything like that. They're trying to enhance it accurately. And that's where I'm at with that. I understand that. And I respect that position. Yeah. I wonder where, you know, politics might get in the way of archaeology. In oh, case that definitely of, happens. Yeah. Know. I don't know that the archaeologists the land, are necessarily. The, land, the classic example, you know what I mean? A lot of this right. stuff is difficult to talk about. Well, and, because, and that's uh, why we can't blame religions. the archaeologists themselves, right? I mean, they are our yeah, friends, yeah, yeah. but there's levels of suppression that they yeah, have yeah. to, you know, get through. Absolutely. But yeah, no, it's, you know, it's definitely a realm of speculation, but I'll just really quickly, the reason I brought it up is because a big part of our understanding of cannabis is in the use of cannabis, right? And we've talked about its uh, different uses, but you talk about how incense burning and the, the actual architecture of where they were mattered, right? They would build these sort of tents. And in my speculative mind, I'm like, that's kind of similar to how certain Native American groups would use a sweat lodge. They might throw certain herbs on the, you know, hot stones during that sweat lodge. It's very similar to this concept of having a, a sense, you know, what's the right word? A, a brazen a brazier or something to burn the teepee like structures of the Scythians, uh, right. the whole way of life of the Scythians. You know what I mean? There is uh, uh, comparable parallels with the right. Native American culture. A lot of it's we're all just, you know, dealing with the same stuff and dealing with, you know what I mean? Well, and we're structures. all humans, right? So you can imagine we're going right? to evolve around similar yeah. structures. Well, and this yeah. kind of brings us back. This to happens in belief systems too, right? We're all mm. like the sun raises every day and the, right. you know, things, all things go around. And, you know, so there's commonalities that we're consciousness is trying to figure out, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, you know, if any one culture could take uh, attribution for the discovery of fire or the wheel or things like that, right? You know what I mean? They're just inevitable, really. Right. No, I'm, yeah, I'm with you. And this kind of brings me to something you, I heard you talking about with Miguel Connor, which is the work uh, into the bicameral mind and how cannabis might have played a role in the evolution of the way our consciousness works or at least the way our, our brain functions i found the bicameral mind theory really fascinating when i yeah. first learned about it but yeah, I think uh, the richness of consciousness the breakdown of the bicameral mind is influenced my own cosmology as any single religious text you know what i mean it, it's a very powerful there's you know maybe some flaws with it here and there you know it's not maybe 100%, but it's really something cool to work with, you know, and I think that Terrence McKenna's greatest contribution uh, to psychedelic studies was bringing in the idea of psychoactive substances in conjunction uh, with Jane's theory, because Jane's doesn't really touch on it. He talks about the chewing of laurel leaves, I think, or something like that, but that's about it. 
uh, but, you know, the combination of the two. And uh, McKenna also talked about cannabis in this context. He thought there was a maybe a connection between cannabis and storytelling because of the way weave the uh, tale and a lot of the, the, the tying things together and all this type of stuff uh, that, you know, interrelates with weaving and stuff like that, weaving stories and stuff like that. He thought may have had some correlationship uh, with cannabis, you know, and he wrote about that in The Fate of the Gods. Um, I think, you know, you take a look at the story, like, uh, you know, the, the indications in the Exodus account there where Moses is talking to the Lord and a pillar of smoke, and he's like focusing on a question. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then eventually a voice comes back out of the smoke. It's like the thoughts in the head. Uh, you know, James's theory, for those that aren't familiar with it, was that ancient man didn't think inside of their head the same way that, that we do. Uh, they were so uh, concerned with... Uh, 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 you know, living and just surviving and eating and that type of stuff. There wasn't a lot of like inner linear thought going on. And the first people that experienced thoughts in their head experienced it almost as if something outside of them was speaking to them. Maybe they heard the voice of their father or something like that, or their chief or something, and it would kick in and tell them what to do. And they could be like, did you hear that? You know, and uh, interestingly, in age of Mesopotamia, the oldest forms of uh, deities or whatever known as tutelary deities, and they represent a, a person's ability for forethought, planning, that sort of thing. And if you didn't have a good tutelary deity, you're just blowing in the wind, man. You know what I mean? And the way they invoked the tutelary deities was a uh, little burning of incense, you know. And he doesn't specify, and I don't know much more beyond that, that they were burning incense, you know, as to what kind. I can't, you know, cast that it was cannabis or anything like that. Uh, but I certainly cannabis would facilitate that sort of thing, you know, certainly in reference to temple worship, you know, there's references to, you know, cannabis ointments that open one ear to God, which would, in Assyrian text, which would basically indicate, you know, the cannabis is referred to in that, in those ones. So that's indicating that same sort of process, right? So Moses goes into the tent and he questions, what are you going to do when a voice comes out of the smoke? This is what you're going to do, you know? <laughs> and he goes out and said, okay, this is what God says we're going to do. <laughs> now, that kind of fits in with that, similar with the Zoroastrian accounts. They're very similar kind of setup. You know, I think that, you know, even terms like genius, it comes from the same root as genie, enthusiasm. When you break down the roots for that, it has to do with possession. You know, so there's this idea that that comes into us, you know, it's like, I, I kind of think, you know, there's like, there's an aspect of it, you know, like James talks about the role of poetry as kind of like the right brain kind of communicating, right? You know, and cannabis certainly facilitates that. And I think the biggest modern classic example is the popularity of cannabis with hip hop. I think I don't think there would be hip hop without cannabis. I think that's a fair statement that, you know, early hip hop culture, particularly and even today still, but the old timers, you know, they particularly were burning a lot of cannabis, right? You know? And a lot of religious literature, as James describes in his book, is actually written in poetic form, you know, with songs and stuff like that. Tambourines, drums, these types of things. These were originally shamanic tools. And you can imagine kind of a shamanic cer cer ceremony, you know, where maybe cannabis is burning and filling the area with smoke and repetitive drums going and tambourines and people are kind of waving back and forth. And eventually somebody starts getting the verses coming out. You know, but 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 
And then the verses start flowing. And this is how the Vedas are all in verse, the Avesta, that's all in verse, large parts of the Old Testament verse. And uh, this is kind of, I think, the popularity of these, uh, you know, cannabis and probably other substances as well, was likely due <laughs> to the, the ability for it to facilitate that type of a scenario. Right. Right. And, you know, you can only look at the, you know, last hundred or so years of artists who've been inspired by cannabis and made art that, you know, inspires others to, to try cannabis. I mean, this is something that grows on people and wants other people to share it with others. It's a naturally sort of joy imbuing sort of plant. And I think, you know, in the same way that you know, the tribes of the Amazon describe kind of being spoken to by the various plants that they had to combine to make ayahuasca. I wonder if ancient man had a similar relationship with that bicameral mind where maybe by accident or by trial, they were burning things in the fire to keep warm and, you know, hey, some cannabis fell in there and then they realize, oh, wow, this smells great. And maybe some sort of voice came into their minds, like get more of this. And, you know, there are lots of there's lots of research being done now talking about how what we now think of as, you know, homo sapien and how it may have diverged from other anthropoid humanoid figures that we find in the fossil record, like Neanderthals and whatnot. Maybe cannabis played a role in, you know, helping us get the edge on these other competitive competing humanoid species back in the ancient world, you know. Yeah, well, Dr. Jeffrey Guy, a head of uh, GW Pharmaceuticals, and I forget the other guy's name, but him and another uh, person that studies cannabis, they wrote a book about cannabis, a very good article about cannabis potentially playing a role in what's known as the Great Leap Forward, you know, and suggesting that the Great Leap Forward is a time period when things like fire and the wheel, and all of a sudden these great ideas started kind of coming to humanity and talking about, you know, cannabis facilitating new ways of thinking. Cannabis would have been attractive, not just because of its psychoactive properties, but the the cannabis seed is one of the most nutritional uh, foods on the planet, you know, probably the single. Uh, most balanced source of uh, um, essential fatty acids, you know, and are very digestible protein. Uh, and so there would have been uh, a lot of motivation for hunter-gatherer men uh, to be collecting wild cannabis and maybe getting the resins on their hand. And, oh, I got to rub this lab and throw that in the fire. <laughs> right. See what that does, you know. <laughs> Let's get some more of that. Boom, just like you said. Right. So, you know, it, it, it's there. And, uh, you know, uh, Michael Pollan, you know, he suggests, you know, in his book, uh, Botany of Desire, that, you know, apples make themselves sweeter. They adapt to being more sweet because it attracts us and then we grow them. And, uh, you know, maybe cannabis and us have some sort of relationship like that. You know, it's certainly interesting that it produces cannabinoids when they interact with our endocannabinoid system or the endogenous cannabinoids of the human body. The only reason that we're affected by it is because these endocannabinoid receptors are throughout our own body and cannabis attaches to them perfectly just as the endogenous endocannabinoids. Mm, Exactly. Well, and yeah, this is something that I think, again, it, it shows how integral cannabis may have 
of a role it may have played in the evolution of humanity or maybe just you know from a creationist point of view you know everything's kind of interlocked in this very you know macro or macro micro synced kind of way where you know humans are born onto the earth and a plant that corresponds with us you know for our journey through the many of development you know is also here for us i mean you could look at it both ways yeah, the tree, well, the tree of life, exactly. And, you know, that kind of leads me to ask you about a different plant that you write about in this book. And it, it's come up in my research in a whole nother line. I've been looking into Yale University and their connection to the opium wars in China. You write about opium in the ancient world. And, you know, nowadays, I think, you know, there's a clear distinction, right? I mean, I would recommend people safely engage with cannabis. I would never recommend people engage with opioids. I mean, you know, obviously people have doctors and if your doctor prescribes it, that's a whole nother thing. I'm not a doctor, but I mean, even in those circumstances, there's evidence that people end up on the street dependent on opioids because of, you know, so-called medicine they've received at a pharmacy, you know, maybe too high of a dose or what have you is a very sensitive topic. But, you know, there's a big distinction between opium and cannabis. And I wonder if in the ancient world the same was true. And maybe even if that played into the politicization of things like cannabis versus opioids, where maybe opioids, as the phrase goes, the opium of the masses, it kind of puts people in this stupor. You know, back then they weren't injecting it, you know, intravenously. They didn't have the technology to do that, we were told. Who knows? There are, there have been introverted needles found from ancient China, but I don't think they were using heroin back then. I think there's a big difference between the use of raw opium and heroin, you know right, what I mean? Right, right, right. A lot of the, the 19th century stuff about opium, those guys were, you, you never spoken opium in the opium, they're getting up and going to work every morning, <laughs> you know? Right. Probably not a lot different than people hanging out in bars and stuff like that. You know, opium was a very important discovery for humanity. The cessation of pain right. is, you know, a godsend, and it's no wonder that they, you know, blessed it because of that. Yeah, you know, often sometimes they're mixed together. You know what I mean? Sufis certainly mix hashish and opium together, but opium is, is itself can be very addictive as well, and people certainly got addictive. I think Paracelsus, I discuss his uh, story in Liber 420. I think, you know, he was like the first to extract, and he made laudanum, you know, which uh, was laudable medicine, and an attempt to make the philosopher's stone. I think that laudanum was basically Paracelsus's own version of of the philosopher's stone, but it likely killed him. And it's thought that Avicenna as well became addicted, you know, and likely died from opium abuse, the, the, the Islamic uh, alchemist. So, yeah, you know, it's a tricky one. You know what I mean? It's like it can be, you know, medicine in the hands of the wise, poisons in the hands of the wise can be medicine, and medicine in the hands of the foolish can be poison, as I think Casanova said. And it's true. You know what I mean? It's like you got to know what you're, you got to take responsibility when you do any of these things and know what you're doing and be sure that's the thing to do for you, you know. And, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say about opium. It was definitely, it was, you know, they, they know it was used in funerary rites in Canaan and places like that. They found opium. I'm sure that it eased the pain of seeing your lost ones pass, you know, and in a way it just as it eases physical pain. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to condemn it or anything, you know. I certainly don't 
dig what heroin and morphine and these types of things have done. But man, if I go to a doctor and I'm losing my leg or something like that, I'm definitely going to be right. using some, some sort. Right, right, right. Within the proper context, it is, as you point out, it is a godsend. I should make that clear. But, you know, I'm Canada, you lived in, in Vancouver. The problem oh, it's terrible, is, is man. terrible you know, there. It's here, and you know. that's like pharmaceutical medicine, man. You know, right. like it's like I was, I got, I had a business, a shop there in Vancouver for like close to two decades, Zero and Shaman. And I sold stuff like ayahuasca peyote, but I also sold things like Kratom, which are which people were using to get off of opiates. You know what I mean? And I'm right in the middle of the worst you know, drug trawl in North America. And I got shut down by Health Canada for selling Kratom. Whereas, you know, the the drugs that these people got addicted to are all legal pharmaceutical drugs, you know. Right. Oxycontin, oxycodone, you know, prescribed. Most of these people became addicted by being prescribed these things and the doctors cut them off and they go to this fucking streets. They try and buy it there. They can't get it. Well, try this heroin. It does, you know, fentanyl, it's fentanyl, you know, and it's like, yeah, man, it's like a, a pharmaceutical problem created by the pharmaceutical industry, man. Yeah. Well, and, and I feel like that's a big reason why, and, you know, this might be a conspiratorial take, but that may be a big reason why drugs were, prohibited initially because they didn't have control over the effects that they were you know giving people you know i'm sure cannabis had a healing effect back then when the jazz era when people were smoking weed and whatnot and then it all it got shut down and the drug war went on and on and still goes on to this day in certain states here in the united states and across the world you know it's amazing how many medicines it was in Prior to prohibition in 1937, you know, probably the peso's cure, probably the most common cough medication had cannabis indica in it. You know what I mean? Right. And people, they take these things and they didn't really think of it as getting high. They're just feeling better. Oh, I feel a lot better. Right. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, it's a, a definite demonization, but there was also like things were really loose. There was like cocaine and Coca-Cola, lithium and 7-Up. It was a lithium soda originally, you know what I mean? Ups and downs and all around. And, you know, that definitely contributed to their mass prohibition and demonization, you know. I think in a lot of ways, you know, prohibition of cannabis, you know, it's Christians versus the devil's weed. It's like the same sort of Puritanism that led to the alcohol prohibition that lasted some decades. And only worse was really racist. You know what I mean? It was sold with pure racism. That's a fact. You know what I mean? You can't get away from how racism was the major component of rape for madness. You know what I mean? And shame of people are smoking weed and blacks and whites are hanging out together, seeing each other as human beings. We can't have that. (laughs) You know, so yeah, it's terrible, you know. Uh, But, you know, I've always liked to... I don't believe in prohibition, but I don't know that I would devote a lot of my own personal energy into crack cocaine legalization or heroin legalization. I like plants, you know? Right. And I think humanity has a natural right to the plants of the earth. And that includes the opium poppy, and that includes the coca plant, which is a very beneficial plant as well, and all plants, you know? And with that gift of these plants comes responsibility, and that's personal responsibility on you as an individual to know what you're using and know what you're doing. And that's where the law should end, man, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, right now, man, humanity has a right to the plants of the earth. And when you're talking about something like cannabis, you're talking about something 
that we've been using for not thousands of years, probably tens of thousands of years. And we have a natural indigenous right to that plant. Absolutely. I stand with you on that. And yeah, it is distressing to hear people say things like legalize all drugs because all drugs are not made equally. And yeah, I think we have a right to the plants that grow naturally on the earth. And, you know, what, what's been done with these laboratories where they synthesize plants and whatnot? I think initially it was an alchemical pursuit with a higher ideal. And then somewhere along the lines, the profit motive became how can we sell the cheapest dope and get the most people hooked? And whether that's the black market or the guys in the corporate offices and, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut or wherever else, you know, it's... It, it, it's all the same. It's junk dealing, you know, and it's sad that we're in a, a world where something like cannabis is still prohibited, whereas these things are pretty easy to, to get in touch with things that are made in, in chemical laboratories where, you know, things that grow naturally from the earth are banned. Yeah, it's a distressing time, but that's why your book is so important because it dispels a lot of the bias. It dispels maybe some of that Christian-centric phobia around something like cannabis, and it shows that, hey, this is something that not only is sacred, but it's talked about in the books that people, you know, for so long have hit people over the head with and said, know your Bible, and it's like, well, hey, guess what? You don't even know that your own Bible is telling people that, you know, God wants us to engage with these plants, right? I mean, it's it, from that perspective, it should be considered a sacred thing. So I think you're doing a, a great deal of a great service to the world, Chris. Now, to bring it back to you, you had your own sort of revelation through reading the Bible, right? It was the book of Revelation, contemplating the tree of life that initially set you on this path, right? Yeah, you know, before I say this, I want to, you know, be clear at this point, you know, 30 you know, odd years later after that relationship, that ha experience that happened in 1990, I, I totally view the book of Revelation as a product of, say, the first century AD, written about the Roman Empire. The beast is, you know, got to do with emperor worship, and a lot of the symbolism all has to do with the Roman Empire's issues with uh, uh, Israel at the time and that sort of thing, right? Nonetheless, I think that it has become, you know, because of people believing it's prophesizing these later events, it's become a symbol in the collective consciousness of humanity, and that has projected it out upon the modern world, not any sort of prophecy. But anyways, going back to this experience, this happened in late 1989, early 1990, I can't remember at that time. I was really into surfing. I was living over on the west coast of Vancouver Island. My whole kind of life was based around surfing. I grew weed and I had a job a few nights a week as a night watchman. And I did a lot of reading on that job, you know, and uh, got a lot of work. <laughs> My ex-employer is not there. Um, and a, a series of events happened that led to this very powerful religious revelation that I had. First of these was there started being all these stories about the Mount Cash Orphanage, which isn't far from where I'm living now. And in the 60s, it was a very big orphanage run by Catholic lay brothers. And in the uh, 80s and 90s, it started coming to light as these children grew into men um, that they were being molested. 
and mass by many priests and monks there, right? And I was like, what the hell? You know, that's so weird. I thought religion was about something else completely, blessing <laughs> children and stuff like that. And I thought, I'm going to get a Bible and start reading the Bible and see what this shit's all about. And I got a Bible and I just started reading it. It just, I just couldn't get into it. So-and-so begat so-and-so. And I stuck it in this night watchman office and I forgot about it. Another event happened is the environmental movements really moved out to the West Coast. I lived near the Clayquot Sound, which was the last coastal rainforest, old growth rainforest in, in North America. And it was set to be logged. And my, I grew up in ground logging. My brother was a logger, you know. And there was all these protests all of a sudden. Around the same time, a friend of mine taped a documentary on industrial hemp. And the term hemp had been totally kind of, people didn't know hemp, what hemp was. We didn't know that hemp and cannabis were the same thing. Nobody talked about hemp. We just talked about marijuana, you know, cannabis, weed, whatever. And he taped this in, thing about industrial hemp, about how you can make all your paper out of it, and fuel and clothing and all this stuff. And I was like, bullshit. And then he showed it to me. And I was like, oh, cool. And I started kind of reading up on it. Also coinciding with this was the Gulf War in Iraq. And Saddam Hussein had fired a Scud missile into uh, Israel. And because of this, people were comparing him to Nebuchadnezzar, the last king of Babylon. And uh, um, he was really into this. He was Babylon was in Iraq, and he was restoring the ancient gardens of Babylon. And he really liked this connection to Nebuchadnezzar and pushed it, you know, in his imagery. And so one night I'm in this fish plant, you know, late at night, three in the morning or something, smoking a joint. And I'm reading uh, the newspaper back then. There was the internet, you know what I mean? And all TV guides, all that type of stuff were in newspaper. And there was an advertisement for a sermon by Pat Robertson. It said, Revelations 18, the fall of Babylon. And he's at the pulpit behind him are tanks and jets. And I'm like, holy shit, they're tying in the book of Revelation with this war in Iraq, right? And I'm like, wow, you know? And the fish plant had numbers of Jehovah's Witnesses in there. They're always talking about the end of the world shit, you know? And, and I'd seen the omen when I was a kid, which is about Revelation. So I think ever since I saw the omen, I had kind of some weird obsession with the book of Revelation. I think anybody, you know, closing into 2000, it was just all such an apocalyptic vibe, you know, as we were getting in that last decade there. And so I thought, I'm going to get that Bible and I'm going to read the book of Revelation right now. And so I get the, the book of Revelation. I start reading it. And John, he's given the scroll and he puts it in his mouth and it tastes as sweet as honey. And he swallows it and it turns bitter in his stomach and he begins to prophesy. And I'm to myself thinking, what did he eat? <laughs> and then it describes them, you know, with wearing clothes of sackcloth and they were given much incense to offer, billowing incense with all the prayers of the saints. And I'm going, this is trippy. And then I got to the end of the book of Revelation and it says, on either side of the river of life stood the tree of life, bearing 12 manners of fruit and yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And when I still get chills, man, you know, 35 years later, I still get chills when I talk about it. It, it felt like light just like poured right into me, man, and that this was a reference to cannabis. And all these fruits were its 
industrial applications. It's used for fiber replacing soil depleting cotton. It's used for fuels and plastic replacing petroleum. You know, it's food, which is the most nutritious sort of seed you could ever hope for. We could feed the world with this stuff, man. You know, on and on, paints, varnishes, whatever you want, man. 12 is cutting it short, man. It's a plan of 100 uses. And uh, when I had this experience, I remember I talked to my wife. She thought I was having some sort of a breakdown or something. She started bawling. Uh, And uh, the next day, I was like, was there anything to that? Or was I just tripping out, man? You know, and I looked at these clear-cut mountainsides around my home, and I thought, well, this hemp stuff, for sure, man. That's just like, you know, that's real. And so I'm going to start promoting that. And while I'm doing that, I'm just going to try to find if anybody else ever had an experience like this. And I started collecting everything I could on the role of cannabis and religion and filing it in files and, you know, slowly started writing articles. And now, you know, here it is 34 years later, five books under my belt, countless articles. I don't even know how many, you know, and archaeological evidence and other things that make me feel like there was something to that original revelation, whether it was some sort of like genetic memory or collective memory or something like that. There was something to me in that time that recognized that cannabis had this sacred role, you know, and I think this connection with Ashura, you know, and her, she had her tree of life, man. That's how they refer to her sacred plant. We know that cannabis was used by her culture, man. And so I think that tree of life is real, man. That cannabis is the tree of life. It is the soma. It is the human. It's here now. You know. Well said, Chris. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, that message is felt. And, you know, in this world where deforestation and the pollution and corporate oversight, totalitarianism really is what it is. It's something that I think needs to be more widespread. And, you know, that leads me to ask you with the legalization of cannabis is there hope still because i i wonder you know myself yeah, well you know here in canada you know went corporate right off the bat but that's all changing man these corporations are going belly up people still bought cannabis off their friends they're having to make room for a whole craft industry you know you got to remember like in legislative politics things happen in steps you know what i mean mm. and sometimes legalization opportunities don't look exactly like we want them to, you know, some people aren't going to be happy until you can grow weed in your backyard and sell it out of your front yard. You know what I mean? But that's an unrealistic uh, goal right off the bat in legislative politics. And sometimes you have to make compromises to make steps and people make the mistake of getting in the way of legalization efforts in their states because it's not perfect, but you know, you can legalize and then make more changes, man. You know, is the way to go. And legalization overall has been a great success here, man. It's removed the stigma uh, away from cannabis. I can't think of anybody I know that's been arrested for cannabis in a long time or charged with cannabis driving or anything like that. I I don't know of anybody that's happened to personally. I'm sure it's happening out there, but I'm not seeing it. And, uh, you know, it's brought cannabis into the lives of little old ladies and other people that might not have uh, felt comfortable using it as a medicine at one time. And it's 
been great progress. And anybody in the USA in any state who's speaking against cannabis legalization with all this scare talk about, uh, you know, leading to harder drugs or the downfall of society and whatnot, what's going to happen, they're lying because Canada is right next door. We have legal cannabis. None of that's happened. None of the shit that the, that the naysayers were saying was going to happen has come to light. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. you know, I'm sure that they have some sort of, you know, hidden motive to why they would be saying such about cannabis. Because, yeah, speaking personally, you know, growing up in an era where it was taboo, when I started smoking weed, it personally brought on a sense of responsibility that I think maybe isn't necessarily so, you know, ardent today with at least speaking from a, again, a place where it's legal. You know, I know my friends down in like Florida, they don't have the same freedom as I do necessarily with cannabis. But I wonder if that, you know, respect that I had for cannabis, like, oh, well, if I'm going to be getting into this, there's some risks. Let me figure out what those risks are. And when I realized that, oh, the only risk was from this, you know, authority around me, it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with actually uh, ingesting cannabis. It was like this relief and it was like, wow, okay, I was lied to. What else am I being lied to about? And that really put on this sense of curiosity and you know i've cooled my jets a little bit i'm not as paranoid as i once was i you know i know that not everybody's you know lying about everything but when it comes to cannabis yeah there was a political motive to keep people oppressed by this drug war helping the prison system and obviously all of the textile plastics all these different things that can be easily replaced by cannabis you know it seems like those factors led to it being suppressed rather than oh you know we don't want people taking cannabis because god forbid you know they brighten up from it or you know, i don't know that's necessarily the overarching motive but it was kind of you know it was easy to feel that way when i was younger because you know all these things that they don't tell you about in school are just waiting for you in these books to find. And, you know, your book happened to be one of those books for me. But, you know, yeah, it was kind of like this sense of curiosity that I got when smoking cannabis. And I wonder maybe if now that it's legal, you know, younger folks who are getting into cannabis, they'll regard it more like alcohol or more like something to party with than rather than something to take seriously and have respect for forbidden forbidden fruit element to the whole thing. You know what I mean? Parallel between the Eden myth and you eat that human die and they eat it, their eyes become open. Right. (laughs) There's a real strong kind of parallel there for sure. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, certainly I think the repression of it caused it to become a symbol of freedom. You know, it's like, you can't have it. Oh, it's not so bad. What do you mean? I can't have it. Uh, And so it's caused it to become this powerful potential tool of social change. You know what I mean? The world over. Right. Right. Uh, And it's, it holds that symbolism everywhere, man. You know? So I don't know, like growing up with it, legal, I just don't know what they're like, you know, probably 
it becomes boring. <laughs> well, and that's, yeah, that's kind of interesting as well. Cause I'm sure now kids are more there is something their parents do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know, you know, it's like, it's good stuff. I think it just is popular. You know what I mean? It's just, it's not getting less popular with legalization here, you know, no. it's good stuff, man. It works. <laughs> so it'll always have a place. It'll always be a market for it because it's good stuff. Yeah. Right. Right. And at heart, I'm an optimist. I try to play a neutral position on the show to ask good questions. At least I hope, but yeah, I like to think that no matter what walk of life you come from or what perspective or biases you may have initially, cannabis has its way of working on you and if that helps people find the truth whatever their particular path to truth is i think that's ultimately a good thing you know when you see pop culture putting it in the same lane as you know designer drugs and things that you know just stupefy people more than anything else it's a little disconcerting, you know, when you see like rappers just smoking like baseball bat sized blunts and they're just like burning cannabis away like it's nothing, you know. It's almost like, you know, this hedonism aspect, you know. And a big part of the way cannabis affects you has to do with your ideals and beliefs about it, you know, like when it was a major pharmaceutical medicine prior to prohibition. Like I said, there's very few accounts of people getting really high off it, but they were taking enough that people were getting high, certainly. Uh, they, they just thought, oh, my medicine's making me feel better. I'm a little tired, but you know, I feel really good. <laughs> but take the pain away. I don't feel so bad anymore. Or, you know, but, you know, like, you know, you could like smoke a, a joint and play Xbox or whatever, or, you know, and you're going to have one experience where you could be a sadhu in India who, you know, bangs the chillum off the third eye and partakes of Lord Shiva before sitting down to his asanas, you know? Mm. And you're going you're gonna to be the same weed, even, but you're going to have two very different experiences because of the way that they're going into it. And I tell you what, when you learn the history of cannabis, you know, the sacred history of its role in magic and religion, that gets into the smoke, man, you know? It gets back in there. And it recloaks it and it becomes that magical thing. Yeah. And yeah, it, I mean, call it psychometry, call it the Akashic method or uh, Akashic record. I think it's the consciousness of the plant itself, you know, in, in a way, it's just like our, you know, consciousness studies have shown that creatures have this mimetic memory, this genetic memory that, teaches them how to do things like intuitively i wonder if plants have this same effect where they can sort of imbue their attributes intuitively when they're engaged with and maybe well, that's well, the story in regards to our own use of them you kind of tap into a certain plane right of connecting with users you know that, that there's a certain vibration level that you kind of pick up on and you know i've always had like great intuition for digging around in this stuff mm. like a part of me knew it or something already you know mm. uh you know carl young he said the collective unconscious was actually the instinctual aspect uh, of man you know an instinct in other animals is like a seal if it could go get a fish the dance born a deer can 
walk around. We have that, but it's buried by these huge forebrain and these evolutionary areas of the forebrain here, or the higher thinking and stuff like that. But all that material for the instinctual mind, the pineal gland, all that type of stuff, that's still in there. And theoretically, there's a genetic memory in there that goes back through the evolutionary cycle, down through history, through all your ancestors, back to our common origin, probably. And, uh, you know, maybe cannabis helps you get down to that a little bit. I think so. I absolutely think so. And, you know, although I haven't noticed it in my peers that I started smoking with initially, it set me on this journey of learning, you know. And, and part of why I started this podcast was to, you know, prove wrong that stigma that cannabis makes you slower and makes you dumber. I think, in fact, the opposite is true. I think with the right practice, cannabis can be used as a tool for learning and as a tool for memory, as you pointed out when you mentioned the, you know, occult use of cannabis in like the Middle East medieval renaissance period right i mean that's fascinating and you know leads us into this conversation about other secret societies and their use of cannabis and you know maybe that's at the heart of why they were secret to begin with because a lot of this stuff has had been suppressed for hundreds and hundreds of years so where better to do it than behind closed doors with trusted friends right i mean that's seems to be at the heart of a lot of these ancient practices and why wouldn't it be at the heart of you know these occultic groups that helped make America as free as it is initially. I mean, hemp is a big part of America's story, whether it was always smoked here or not. It definitely played a role in, in American history. I mean, even the Green Dragon Tavern, there's debates as to what that Green Dragon, uh, was it the Green Dragon or the Green Lion? I'm thinking of the Green Lion in Boston, where they were would meet and plan the revolution. Who knows? Maybe that Green Lion was green for a reason, right? I mean... I think it's played a much larger role than at least modern culture gives it credit, right? You know, movies like Cheech and Chong or Harold and Kumar give us this sort of sophomoric, you know, jaunt through, you know, friends getting into crazy situations. But I think in a way it's something that can set you off on what Campbell calls the hero's journey, where you, you really embark on this path of self-discovery, which you know, manifests in, in different forms for different people. Lucky for us, it manifested in you this incredible journey uh, uh, that amounted to writing five books and, and possibly more, right? Because after, before you, you finished this book, there were other books in the work that you put off. Uh, do you think you'll, you'll be planning on picking those books back up and maybe trying to flesh those out or... And I don't know, it's like, maybe if I get enough interest in what I've done already, right now, all I'm thinking about is getting some waves, man. I love <laughs> I just, that. <laughs> I, kind of, I kind of just really been digging, getting back into surfing. Wow. Not this month, though, right? Do you go out in the water when oh, it's yeah, this cold? Yeah, yeah. I was just out yesterday. Wow, that's awesome. So you got a, a wetsuit and all that. and Yeah, we surf here around. Right on. Good waves in the winter. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm on, well, I was, I grew up on Long Island Sound, so not a lot of waves there. <laughs> but yeah, interesting stuff. Now, 
have you looked into surfing's origins and if psychedelics played a role in that? Because oh, I know the brother paternal love and uh, uh, Rick Griffin. You know, there's all sorts of psychedelic stone surf people. Many of the well, world champs. Going back stoners. to like the the Hawaiian culture, though, like the original. Uh, I don't surfboards. think like uh, the early Hawaiian. There was much cannabis use. I don't think like cannabis wasn't in Hawaii before. Right. Columbus or any, you know, or Cook, I guess, would have been that situation. But, uh, you know, certainly early on, surf culture embraced cannabis for sure. Right. Yeah, I, I guess I asked because I wonder if there was any sort of psychedelic plants being used in those parts I'm of the not world. I'm sure about that. Yeah, I'm just not the person to ask. I, there may yeah. well be something, you know, in Hawaii that they were using. I really don't know about the indigenous plants there, though. Right. Well, surfing certainly was and is, still is a very spiritual thing. And uh, Yeah. yeah. Sure. So goes hand in hand. And that's awesome. I... You know, I think that about does it for the questions I had prepared. Cool, man. Um, well, it was a pleasure. Yeah, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Chris. And you have so much work out there for people to check out. So I'm going to link all that in the description. Of course, you joined me once before. Is there anything you'd like to promote outside of the latest book? Oh, uh, nothing really too much. If you want to find out more about me, just Google my name in cannabis or YouTube search or find me on Facebook. I'm always posting stuff on Facebook. You know, I'm always digging around on the history of cannabis and posting stuff. I have an Instagram account too, but it's more pictures and things like that. But yeah, you know, I'm an easy guy to track down and find out about. And yeah, keep on keeping on people. Right on. Well, with that, folks, pick up the book, learn more about the ancient sacred history of cannabis. It's a topic that I'm sure will come up again on the show. And uh, I look forward to having you back on the show again sometime, Chris. But until Sounds then, good, brother. Until Take then, care of me. immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, and that was our conversation with Chris Bennett. Today, our supporters are in for a treat. Uh, I had my good friend Roman join me for an outro to break down some of the things that we agreed with Chris Bennett on and some of the things that we disagreed with Chris Bennett on. If you heard some of the statements that Chris made about politics and even uh, conspiracy, it definitely didn't feel at home on this show, but we've got to respect people where they're coming from, from all different perspectives. I respect Chris's work immensely, although we might not agree on everything. He does a great job uh, sussing out the esoteric history of cannabis, which is very important to me. And, uh, you know, whether you smoke weed or not, it's still an interesting conversation to have an interesting subject to be familiar with and how integral these things have uh, been in the development of human history or as i tried to get into today uh, maybe a remnant of the ancient lost civilization who knows that's up for debate and we will be getting into that in the supporters only outro of this show which is an additional 45 minutes of conversation with my good friend roman who i gave secret access to this episode prior to its release so he's familiar with the conversation as well and i'm going to start doing this more uh, it's pretty easy to send the audio files to people via telegram 
So I'm going to consider maybe even having listeners of the show. People who have been listening to the show for quite a while. You know who you are. I know who you are. I've seen your names on Instagram and Telegram. Uh, if you think you would be a good fit for an outro breakdown of an episode, let me know and I'll uh, give you pre-release access to one of the conversations that's yet to come. And there's some good ones on the way. Uh, Steven Snyder will be joining me on the show. He just so happened to be also interviewed on the Higher Sight Chats podcast. I had no idea about that, but that's awesome. Uh, especially since we didn't even talk about anything that they talked about on the Higher Side Chats. So if you like Steven Snyder, you're going to get a lot from him uh, on some great shows. He was on Tinfoil Hat a month ago. He's on my show soon, and he was just on the Higher Side Chats. He's got his own excellent podcast. So look forward to that and so much more. Uh, we got to give a big shout out to our newest patreon supporters thank you so much to the people who are supporting this show it helps me continue to do what i do at the pace that i do it if you like listening to this many shows a week well be grateful sign up share what you got you'll get a lot more a lot more bang for your buck if you spend as little as $5 to support the show, you get access to all sorts of bonus episodes, continuations to episodes, and uh, all sorts of content that you're missing out on if you don't sign up. We still haven't reached our 250-person goal. We're almost there. We only, we're only 40 people away. So sign up today, please. Now, on to the shout-outs. Shout-out to Jake. Shout-out to... April and again I gotta stop myself from giving free shout outs because Jake uh, you are on the free tier so folks listening to this just make sure that your credit card didn't decline if you're listening to the free feed you should be listening to the Patreon feed and when your card declines you shouldn't have access to the Patreon feed anymore so uh, if you are looking you're saying oh no there's no episodes up updating well maybe your card declined so check that out help us keep this show going at the pace that we're moving uh, but yeah lots of things to come i just wrote a new substack article so go and check that out on substack if you sign up for the eight dollar tier on patreon i'll give you access to the substack as well oh shout out to uh david and sherry they signed up for the $2 tier. Right on. I appreciate that. And they paid for the whole month in advance, too. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. Very cool. Welcome to the show. And they got a shout out by accident when I when they were a free tier person. So maybe they figured out that they were on the free tier. But either way, it's not just the great supporters that help keep this show going it's all of you listeners who endure listening to the ads if you prefer an ad free experience sign up on the patreon or the Substack today and get a, access to the ad free rss feed all of the episodes in the archive free of ads you don't have to listen to them i personally don't like listening to ads but hey i also don't like uh not having any money so until we get a rush of supporters on patreon the ads are going to stay. And speaking of ads, we have some very personal, very awesome sponsors 
who are supporting the show. They are Isaac Lazell of Oregonite. Go to Instagram, Oregonite on Instagram, and check out all of the amazing artwork that this gentleman has created. You can get custom pieces yourself if you want to integrate the Oregonite energy into your home. And Isaac is going to be joining me on the show soon to get into the truth behind Organite. So check that out. Let him know that you heard about him on the My Family Thinks of Crazy podcast. And of course, if you're a listener of this show, you know about the Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. Go to the Hit Kit on Instagram or hitkit.us. Use the promo code crazy and save at checkout. The Hit Kit is the best way to keep whatever you're smoking on safe and sound, whether it's a blunt, a joint, a spliff, whatever it is, throw it in the Hit Kit and stay lit. And that's it for this episode, folks. I appreciate all of you for tuning in. I hope you decide to sign up and support the show, and then you'll get access to the rest of this episode with Roman. All right. Until next time, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are, in the now. Man, I think, I think I'm fucking peeking right now. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service, can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. It's for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, my third eye's open and my chakra's flowing All seven channels in my spirit's floating Knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean It's the eightfold path and the sacred lotus uh, I'm peeking, flipping through Akashic records My ego's decomposing like a leper I'm Edgar Casey going some levitation So with zero hesitation as I jump into the spaceship I'm weary from thinking like a earthling While skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling I'm spiraling, sacred geometry Studying my old selves like it's anthropology Honestly, feeling like life's a comedy As big a game as a paper-run economy I've been playing safe, but safest for the weaker heart Wait, I'm peeking, tearing everything apart Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit Certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies. I lay to rest the ego and the frequent themes that keep me seeing life inside a box. Small minds kick rocks, Pandora, let's talk. Uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite And every time I'm peeking I can see it for an instant I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles Consumerism living in their vacant smiles uh, Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky Try gaining wisdom on the fly. I'm touching base with things I can't explain. Gods without names on a different plane. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hard
hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait.